Good morning. Our opening words this morning come from the beloved author Toni Morrison, whom we lost this week, but who leaves us with so much, so many of her words. These are from her acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize for Literature, which she received in 1993. Be it grand or slender, burrowing, blasting, or refusing to sanctify, whether it laughs out loud or is a cry without an alphabet, the choice word, the chosen silence, unmolested language surges toward knowledge, not its destruction. But who does not know of literature banned because it is interrogative, discredited because it is critical, erased because alternate? And how many are outraged by the thought of a self-ravaged tongue? Word work is sublime. She thinks because it is generative. It makes meaning that secures our difference, our human difference, the way in which we are like no other life. We die. That may be the meaning of life. But we do language. That may be the measure of our lives. Welcome to this place and this hour, a place where we do language as we seek to know each other and ourselves better. I invite Leah to share an opening song with us this morning. Let's make a new 
this is me there's no one else on earth i'd rather be yeah here i am just me and you and i vow to speak my words for truth it's a new world it's a new start comes alive with the beating of all of our hearts it's a new day let's make a new plan it's just waiting for me It is always such a pleasure to have you here, not just because your music is beautiful, but because I feel like you have the gift of finding just the right song after whatever I've just said. So that was amazing and perfect. Thank you. Welcome all of you, not just Leah, to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Amanda Poppy. I'm privileged to serve as clergy leader here. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am so glad that you are with us this morning, whether you are in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can particularly welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We really enjoy talking about what we have found in this community, but we are most eager to hear what it is that you are looking for. We hope you'll join us after our platform service. This morning, we've got some bagels and coffee in the lobby, and we'd love to have you stay and chat and learn a little bit more about who we are here. We also hope that you'll consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet, which you would have received at the welcome table when you came in. You can drop that in the collection basket when it passes later in our platform service. I am so delighted to have, um, oh, well, first of all, let me just say to my regular folks, hi, it's good to be back. <laughs> I've reached the point in the, um, in the oh, thanks, that's nice. <laughs> I've reached the point in the summer officiant script that I created where I say that this summer our regular clergy person, Amanda Poppy, is on sabbatical. But I'm not. I'm here. So I'm um, glad to be with you again. And, um, and it was great to hear about all of the great platforms that you enjoyed and to talk a little bit with the Reverend Karin Rasmussen, who was our sabbatical clergy while I was gone. And today, I am super excited to have my colleague, the Reverend Amanda Weatherspoon, with us. Amanda is one of the ministers at River Road UU Congregation. She is there the Minister for Justice and Community Building, which like, just sounds great. And um, we're so excited to have her with us this morning. I'd like to remind you to silence your electronic devices this morning uh, so that you can be fully present with us. Um, just put it on vibrate. Though while you have it out, you might as well check in on social media, let folks know that you're here and invite them to join you next week. And now I'd like to invite Susan Runner to come and um, light our community candle this morning. So, okay. Um, so some of you may know that Susan Runner and 
two other West members, Rose Imhoff and Russell Corbin, um, who is one of our just graduated teens, were all featured in a book that the American Ethical Union created called Ethical Humans. It's so nice. <laughs> so I'm now going to refer to you as an ethical human every time I see you, Susan. Um, Susan was um, featured really uh, particularly around her work with our sibling community in El Salvador um, where um, Dr. Runner brings her dental clinic um, with like a foot pump or something and does, it's a motor, I guess there's a motor, I don't know, the, the mythology has increased, and, um, and does dental work and has for many years with our sibling community there, um, and then Rose's amazing life, very interesting, varied life is featured, and um, Russell's work both with the sibling community and some of his environmental activism are featured. So um, you can purchase these, we have a few which we'll have out in the lobby um, starting next week and you can get them from the American Ethical Union, they feature folks from societies all around the, uh, all around the country. But I just, um, I wanted to give Susan hers. Thank you. And yeah. And to give a special shout out, so our folks were interviewed and their little write-ups were done by Beth Baker and Ross Wells served as the photographer. And so huge thanks to Beth and Ross as well for creating those. I'm sure all of the people featured from many ethical societies are wonderful, and we know that the three from Wes are the best. So, the folks. Um, Susan's going to share our statement of purpose this morning. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each other's each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you so much. As Susan lights our community candle, I invite you to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring a chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of the families and especially the children of immigrants who have been recently deported in mass ice raids and in small ice raids happening all the time around our country. I am also keenly aware that this week we marked the fifth anniversary of the killing of Mike Brown. And I hold in my heart his family and all who are working for a larger justice. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world.
and let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now to settle into a time of deeper meditation. Close your eyes if you're comfortable or soften your gaze. Make yourself comfortable in the seat, whatever that feels like for your body. Take a breath in and let it out. Try that again, in and out. As you continue to breathe fully and slowly, be aware of how your body feels in this moment. Notice where you hold tension, where you are relaxed. Notice the way it feels to breathe, your stomach or chest moving, the air passing through your mouth or nose. If you can, imagine your heartbeat. Listen for it. Extend now your awareness around you to the people breathing and beating nearby. Each one of us, our own person. Each one of us connected to every other one. I invite you to hold this awareness and your breath in and out in the silence that follows.
Hello and good morning. Thank you so much for welcoming me and to your beautiful community for the soul nourishing music and the opportunity to gather together once more this morning. So one of the things I love about humanism is that it places an intrinsic value on what we create together for better or for worse. 
And I'm not talking about a moral or superior value, but rather a significance. And I, try, I find tremendous value in popular culture, music, media, fashion, art, technology, as a gauge of the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Even more fascinating is how these stories hold up to the reality of our lived experience. Let's take Hollywood, for example. Hollywood is not a nonprofit organization. It exists for the sole purpose of producing content that will generate revenue by giving people what they want. So when cultural tides turn, so does the content that our culture produces. We're witnessing more representation in film and television, more stories where people of color, queer people, disabled people, economically disadvantaged people, our protagonists are not reduced to stereotypes or tropes, in which people are complex and unique and full. And while there remains plenty of work to be done to further expand this representation, I can solidly say that a person like me is more represented in media than ever before in my lifetime, which feels very important and crucial. But there's a complexity with media. While it tells one story of our ideals, it simultaneously exposes our truth. It's no coincidence that while folks like me and other marginalized people become more and better represented in pop culture and media, that we also become more represented in institutions, in leadership roles, in prominent and prestigious roles, and the like. And it's also definitely not a consequence that with the rise of this representation, there's also been a steady rise in identity-based violence and hate. So essentially, as we become more equitable and representative, more true to the diversity that already exists in our world, the more dangerous it becomes for us all. The more that people in the margins seek to embrace our identities as our own sources of empowerment and belonging in the world, the more vilified the idea of identity becomes. So the term identity politics has all but become demonized, and not only in the alt-right and places like that, but the negative interpretation of this term is becoming more commonplace in the mainstream even. In a sense, identity politics can refer to the ways that our identities shape our experiences, with a particular importance placed on our social location, race, gender, sexuality, and the like. It also takes into account that the society that we live in is also shaped by these constructs. Essentially, this concept postulates that the human experience is not neutral. When we apply this concept to oppression and injustice, it becomes threatening. And that's because one of the main ways by which oppression and injustice is enacted is by normalizing oppression, by creating systemic oppression and acting as if that's just the way it's always been and there's nothing that we can do, the underlying assumption being that life is fair and just and that those who suffer the consequences of oppression do so by their own choice. Identity politics disrupts this notion by asserting that these systems are enacted upon people who then carry the effects of oppression into everyday life. And furthermore, that this oppression affects their opportunities, quality of life, wellness, and their general experience. 
Now, the denigration of this concept is absolutely nothing new. We've all heard terms like pulling the race card or the attacks on affirmative action. Sometimes the denigration came in the form of overt bigotry, like those who oppose desegregation. Sometimes covert, like the DSM citing homosexuality as a mental illness. But there's always been a notion that people are solely responsible for their own lot in life. It's that, that's your problem to fix, not mine kind of mentality. Also, in a way, this term has become reductive, implying that all the discourse and action that regards the ways in which those in the margins are impacted by real systemic conditions, it can be boiled down to a lack of personal responsibility or an overreaction, or that we took care of all of this long ago and it's just something that we all need to get over, and yet, with each generation, we witness the same type of identity-based violence and oppression as the generation before. And of course, it's always repackaged and rebranded in some other type of way because we can't have legalized slavery in the fields. Instead, we privatize prisons. The Proud Boys instead of the KKK, we still redline. We still discriminate based on sex and gender and all kinds of things. We still have slavery in almost every form. So how could anyone possibly say that identity somehow doesn't matter? This past week, in the wake of the two mass shootings in one 24-hour period, the chair of African American Studies at Princeton University, Eddie S. Glaude, Jr., he said this on MSNBC, and I'm just paraphrasing. He says, see, the thing is this. There are communities that have had to bear the brunt of America confronting the danger of their innocence, and it happens in every generation with the mentality of, oh my God, is this who we are? He later goes on to say, and so what we know is that the country has been playing politics for a long time on this type of hatred. We know this, so it's easy for us to place it all on the president's shoulders. It's easy for us to place Pittsburgh on his shoulders. It's easy for me to place Charlottesville on his shoulders. It's easy for us to place El Paso on his shoulders, but this is us. And if we're gonna get past this, he says, we can't blame it on him. He's a manifestation of this ugliness that's within us. So Glaude's analysis points to the age-old conflict and tension of the ideal versus the truth. And so this brings me to Eric Erickson and his conflict stage theory of development. So Eric Erickson was a student and a contemporary of Sigmund Freud's, and we all know Freud can be very problematic, <laughs> and he had developed this psychosexual stage theory of development, which just to sum it up and not to get into it, it focused on the ways in which pleasure and frustration impacted a person's psychological development, asserting that a person could not move to the next stage without first completing the stage that they were in. And so Erickson came along in the same school of thought, yes, but he expanded this theory to encompass the sociological and societal impact of a person's development as well. So where Freud's theory focused on the individual psyche, Erickson focused on the relationship between the individual and themselves and also the individual and their environment. So Erickson's eight stages characterize each developmental age from birth to end of life. And his stages aren't so much about conquering that stage so that one can level up, but rather navigating the conflict presented at each stage 
as to move to the next with a more solid foundation or not. So the conflict beginning at birth is trust versus mistrust, in which an infant learns from their environment whether or not they can trust those around them. And this trust impacts their feeling of safety or of belonging and general well-being. Now let's say the infant is in an abusive situation. They internalize a sense of mistrust and this mistrust impacts how they navigate the next conflict stage and so on. And I don't need to go through all the stages, but there is one in particular that's always captured my interest. And that is the identity versus role confusion conflict stage. So this stage occurs roughly around adolescence uh, and it's characterized by a search for identity and personhood and sense of self. And this conflict in the stage is figuring out where one fits into the world in light of their identity that is developing. And we keep in mind that Erickson's stage theory is focused on environmental impact. So at this stage, a person is not only exploring who they are, but how they fit into the world around them. That's that role confusion part. They're figuring out what kind of person am I going to be? Now, many psychologists agree that while personality is set from pretty early on in life, identity often changes. And this stage is the first stage, according to Erickson, in which we begin to struggle with our identity. So rather than focusing on the individual, I want to apply this theory to the collective, because it seems like not only is that the conflict stage that we're all in as a society, but that our collective lack of resolution in the previous stages has given us a shaky foundation on which to explore and be honest about our identity as a people. I firmly believe that if we really want to know what the larger societal trends are, we only need to examine the institutions to which we belong. So as a Unitarian Universalist minister, I experience our little institution as a microcosm of the larger society. There's absolutely nothing that's happening in the larger culture that that's not also happening in the institution of Unitarian Universalists because we are not separate from anything. We're exploring our identity as a faith institution that was structured on white heteropatriarchy. And we're not unique in this because literally every institution in America was built on the same thing. And although we've historically championed many causes to promote equality and equity and justice, we find ourselves struggling to understand who we are now when the efforts of so many in the past within and beyond that organization have produced people like me. And when we struggle to find our place in the world, we struggle to realize and understand what it means to be a faith community as that continues to change and evolve into something else. As the demographic shifts to include folks who aren't so economically stable or partnered or cisgender or in traditional family relationships, we struggle to apply the old rubric of success and work and deliverables to a new era of what it means to be productive and successful. And I use the word struggle very intentionally because it's not a stroll in the park. Our rate of controversy is increasing quicker than we can keep up. And although it may seem dire, I think it's excellent because it means that we're doing our work. When I encounter folks who deny oppression, both within and beyond my institution, people who shrug their shoulders and say it's not really a concern or it's made up or a dozen other common retorts, I do sometimes feel hopeless and frustrated. 
especially the past couple of weeks, when no matter what we encounter in our world that gives us proof that we are not past this, no matter how many people have to die, no matter how much violence becomes a part of our everyday existence, no matter the lack of safety that we all experience, there are people who still deny the very real lived experience of so many people in this country and in our larger global village. And it's incredibly disheartening and very frustrating to live in a world that denies the reality of so many of us. But more than anything, it can make me feel very powerless. And therein lies the crisis of the identity versus role confusion conflict stage. Now the term identity crisis, as some of you may know, actually comes from Erickson's theory. It's an unresolved conflict that leads to a cycle of confusion and frustration. And I know that a lot of us feel powerless in this never ending cycle of anger and violence and crisis. And the new cycle keeps coming and it's as if we never get to process or rest with each other or mourn or heal. There's always a new conflict, a new controversy, something else that captures our attentions, something that further breaks our hearts. And of course, that's absolutely nothing new. Many communities have always lived in this kind of terror, have always experienced this type of violence and this type of hate. And we wonder when will it ever end? And there's also the question of uh, the line between exploring identity and something like nationalism or xenophobia or supremacy, these ways that we separate ourselves, these ways that we push the other out, these ways that fear lives through us all. So how do, we collect, how do we navigate our collective identity while embracing our unique identities? And these identities have always dictated so much about how we each move through the world. And of course, none of us have the answers to these questions, but we're all living in the reality of the consequences of our past and of our present. But where there's hopelessness, I believe there's opportunity. And where there's opportunity, I believe there's joy. Opportunity to make space for each other with boundaries, of course. Opportunities to grow together in a new way, a way that celebrates who we are becoming as a people, the ways we are evolving and adapting. In our own institutions, we have an opportunity to get real about what it means to have an examined faith one that accounts for the lived realities of the past with the complexities of the present, to get real about what we need and what we are and who we want to become together. We have an opportunity to come alive in this moment, in these spaces of crisis, and really what other choice do we have? There's no other replacement humanity coming to make us better. We can no longer pretend that this idea of onward and upward means anything real. In fact, many of us have never had that luxury. And we're here for this. We were made for these times, and that is the good news this morning in these times, my friend. We were made for these times. We are here. And so I look to humanist ideas and principles to what we are capable of creating together, of that which is from us but bigger than all of us, the tools of technology, 
of communication, art, music, creativity that allows us to tell a new, different, more honest, more truthful story of what's happening now and what's always been happening. And as a spiritual humanist, I embrace grace and mercy and love and presence with my whole heart. And as a full and flawed human being, I hold these times of transition with great tenderness. These are opportunities to be real with ourselves within faithful community, within our families, within our spaces of work, and the places in which we live. When I explore my own identity even, I can find places of privilege or ignorance or fear. None of us is exempt, and we are all becoming something new together. That, to me, is the deeper meaning of those conflict stages. It's about being where we are while knowing that while we are transitioning into something else, we get to drive that ship. The struggle of identity is a struggle of transition, a struggle of becoming, a struggle of transformation, and that struggle is what leads us to the truth of all existence, which is connection. The need to connect and belong and contribute is directly linked to the need to survive and thrive. Embracing my identities allows me to grow into a fuller and more truthful version of myself so that I can connect authentically and meaningfully to others in the world around me. Embracing my identities allows me to become more than just my race or gender or sexuality because those identities are important and they point to a deeper truth about who I am and why I am who I am. And of course, there's so much more to be said about identity and the roles that power plays within that. There's so much exploration around the need for marginalized people to come together for support and comfort, to retreat from being othered that the world so often puts on us. And there's also a lot of nuance to apply here. And these are conversations that we all should be having, paying attention to power, looking what it means to come together in affinity, looking at what it means to be in community together given all of our unique differences. We shouldn't shy away from these conversations in our lives, in our homes, in our family, in our community. The denial of the reality of the human condition does us no help in these times. I don't know how to make sense of anything that's going on, but I know we are wasting our opportunities to grow and to live and to love if we don't look at what's happening and our role in it as well. Not waiting for some extra different thing to come and save us or create a new law or do something that will magically stop this. Because just like Hollywood is a mirror to the reality of what we want and what we pay for and what we consume, this violence is a mirror of the reality that we all create together. So when we explore these crises and we explore our identities, we have an opportunity to explore the ways that we can use who we are and the fullness and the realness of who we are to address this violence, the violence that starts in our lives, in our communities, in our friends, in our family, the violence that starts with isolation, the violence that starts from not understanding somebody else's life. None of us are separate from what is happening in our world right now. 
That's the work of conflict. That's the work of conflict stages. To fully face ourselves, to fully face each other, and to be real about that. And of course, to love ourselves through this transition, to find the joy and the connection of humanity that pulls us all together. May it be so for us as a collective. May we embrace the realities of who we are, how we got here and why, not to separate, not to assume superiority, but to connect with one another deeply as we transform into something truer and more meaningful. May we hold these times with a great tenderness and with great respect. As we navigate the many crises of our time, may we do it knowing that we belong to something larger, a larger story, a larger narrative, something that is embedded in truth. And that we are creating the next chapter of human history. We are not beholden to the ways that it used to be, the way that we think it has to be. We get to create that together. What a joy, what a blessing, what an opportunity. With every act of honesty and loving conflict, with every difficult conversation and all of the growing pains that we experience that are gonna keep coming, all the ways that we're gonna be called into discomfort, all the ways that we are gonna be called to each other. May we celebrate the opportunity and the pure potential within each of us to heal each other and to heal our world. May it always be so. Ashe and blessed be. For the greater good of all, the greater good of all, the greater good of all. I am here for the greater good of all, the greater good of all. I am here for the greater good of all, greater good of all, greater good of all. I am here for the greater good of all, greater good of all. Will you sing that with me? Thank you. 
Thank you both so much. It is a particular joy to come back from sabbatical to a Sunday morning in which I am so fed. Um, so thank you. And, you know, is the perfect piece again. Okay. All right, Leah. Thank you. I feel we could sing that one every Sunday. <laughs> every Sunday. This is the time in our platform service.